0: This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.
1: As you learn to self-regulate, you can start to make choices that are actually in alignment with your goals and values. Because when you're dysregulated, like when you're highly emotionally reactive, like what will happen is if you can't regulate it, if you can't manage it, you'll execute a behavior to try and make the pressure go away.
2: Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. Today, we'll discuss how to maximize your brain wellness. We'll find out what an iron deficiency looks like. We'll learn about emotional regulation. And lastly, we'll explore the dilemma of delayed routine vaccinations. But first, a little bit of business. Omega Alpha is 100% Canadian owned and has been GMP certified for manufacturing to pharmaceutical standards since its inception in 1992. It uses only all natural herbs, vitamins and minerals in their formulations. The company is site licensed for manufacturing nutraceuticals by the Natural Health Products Directorate, a division of Health Canada. They have four company divisions, both a consumer line and professional line of human products, equine pet health products, and a custom manufacturing private label division. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit their website at OmegaAlphaInc.com. Omega Alpha's products are created by their scientific team headed by their owner, operator, and CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Dr. Chang holds a PhD in physiology and biomedical engineering from the University of Toronto. He also has two years postdoctoral experience in clinical biochemistry, looking at free radicals and antioxidants. He's published over 20 peer-reviewed articles and conference proceedings, and he's a regular guest on this show. Welcome back, Gordon. How are you?
0: Very good, Jamie. Thanks for having me on again.
2: Always a pleasure. We've got a big topic today. When we talk about brain health, you know, it's it's a scary topic for people particularly for those of us who are aging. I wouldn't say it's taboo, but it's of concern to anybody and everybody, I think. Would you agree?
0: Yeah, I think so. As you know, as as we're all getting up there in years, we're hearing more and more about people with Alzheimer's, cognitive decline, etc. A lot of us are concerned about what can we do to stave off decreasing in brain function? And, you know, I don't know what we can stave it off per se that's 100% guaranteed, like meaning pop this pill and you're good to go, it'll never happen. I, I think the best that we can do is to cognitive decline, a lot of it has to do with your genetics, mm-hmm. right? Like I've known people who were in their 90s and they're sharp as a tack. Right. Then there are people who are in their 70s and you can visibly see cognitive decline. And sometimes it's not an all or nothing thing because sometimes they're a little bit slow in finding words, etc. But um, if you give them time, they're good to go. Meaning they're sharp, they're very logical in in their way of thinking and speaking, etc. So it really depends on the person. I mean, I, I think um, other than things like exercise, and as I'm getting older, I, I see uh, the value of exercise, right? Yep. And even the things like um, doing things like crossword puzzles, stimulating your brain, etc. All those things help to stave off, right? But I know a lot of people are looking not for that because they know about all those things already. They're looking for something that... What can we use? What can we take that that staves us off, right? And I think that's the major thrust of our program today.
2: It is. But before we do that, I, I would say, you know, I actually, I think people do know that, but it, it almost bears repeating. Like like physical activity actually helps with mental acuity. I, I mean, it helps me achieve clarity. It helps me control my moods, which can impact on your cognitive abilities. You mentioned crossword puzzles. I actually. Every lunch, I do a crossword puzzle and a Sudoku. Every single lunch, every single day. Because I think it's important to keep your brain active. Like, doing those puzzles is like exercises for your brain.
0: For sure. I mean, but, you know, I, I tell to people, I say to people... That exercise that you do, physical exercise, is very, very important because of it increases your blood circulation. And any time you increase your blood circulation, right, it circulates everywhere. In the muscles, it goes up to the brain, yep. et cetera. And I really truly believe, and I have to say the word believe, because the circulation of the blood in the brain, I believe, clears out a lot of what I call toxins and so on and oxygenates the brain even more right which in itself is a big plus right and it helps keep the brain active right mm-hmm. and healthy and i, I there are things that you know eating a, a wide variety of fruits and vegetables antioxidants again keeps the brain active and healthy
2: and you know getting a good night's sleep can be helpful you and i were sort of discussing before the show you know, I'm I'm struggling with my sleep this week, and I know it's impacting my ability to think things through. It's just like when I'm tired, I think that differently. Is, you know, I that
0: just... is so true. A good night's sleep, and and you know, if you if you look into sleep science, right, you can see the benefits of sleep, et cetera. But that's another program altogether. Yeah. I mean, you know, even if you're fuzzy, we all know that if you don't sleep well, right, you wake up the next day, you're fuzzy. And if you have cognitive decline, it comes out even more because you didn't sleep well.
2: Yeah. What are some of the causes of mental decline as we age?
0: That's the million-dollar question. Back in the old days, uh, people used to see protein, fibrillar protein structures in the brain and say, ah, causes. that That's why the brain doesn't function well, right? Cognitive decline. But what we do know, there are people who, who are very sharp and when they passed on, they have examined their brains and they have found these fibrillar proteins in the brain and the person was sharp as a tack. So the question is, are the presence of these structures the cause of our cognitive decline or is there brain plasticity where the brain functions by setting up new synapses around these structures and it really doesn't hurt too much, right? Mm -hmm. We don't know, right? We suspect, but we don't know. Right. Back in the day, people used to say um, aluminum, right? right?
2: I remember that. You could
0: find aluminum yeah. in all, all these fibrillar proteins in the brain, and they say aluminum was the cause. But again, it may not be the cause, it may be a final outcome of what's causing cognitive decline, right? So uh, really a lot of it we don't know. But we do know things like there's a few things that will help with cognitive decline. And I say the word help right? Mm -hmm. I I don't want to think that it's a cure for cognitive decline, right? And and the the one that seems to work the best is exercise, right? Mm -hmm. But I think if you do exercise in conjunction with other things, it will definitely help better.
2: Before we jump ahead to dealing with the specifics, Mm -hmm. maybe we should explain what the difference is between dementia and Alzheimer's disease, because there's overlap, but it's not the same thing.
0: There is a lot of overlap. And, and I don't like, because when you use the word dementia, it's all like a...
2: It's a loaded term, it is.
0: It's a loaded term. No, but when you talk about dementia, cognitive decline, and Alzheimer's, it's like a gradation on a scale, I would say. Okay. Right? Uh, if you put it like that, you know, because it depends on where you are on the scale. Cognitive decline sometimes is that... You know, uh, you're getting older, you're finding it's hard to find words, etc. But everything else works well. Your memory is sharp, everything is going on, everything is good. Then you have dementia where you look at people and again, your memory is going, you lost touch with reality and so on. And then you have Alzheimer's where you really don't know anything. And I would say Alzheimer's is probably the worst part of dementia. Now, these are clinical, uh, what I call clinical definitions, right? So, yes. So, you know, uh, it, it varies on, on what you how you call it, but I, I think it's all gradations on a scale. All
2: right. Now let's get into your wheelhouse and talk about the connection between sort of ailments in our bodies and and how it impacts our brain health. So, I know that inflammation is one of your the issues that you like to talk about. Does it impact? mental health issues?
0: If you look at a lot of studies, uh, uh, there's some studies that are going on to say that um, Alzheimer's, cognitive decline, uh, dementia, is all caused by, is an inflammatory disease. And it's all caused by inflammation of the tissue in the brain or inflammation elsewhere in the body that causes decline of of brain function, right? Mm -hmm. There is some truth to that. Whether it's the only cause of it or not is that's debatable, right? Mm-hmm. It's like anything else, um, th- there's no hard or fast 100% this or 100% that, right? So one of the things I I, I would point out is if you have if you eat a lot of anti-inflammatory diet, or uh, and uh, you know and and you take. Supplements which will help with inflammation. So, supplements which will help with inflammation is any type of antioxidants. Right. Mm-hmm. It does not necessarily need to target only the brain tissue, because if you talk, if it's elsewhere, because un- unfortunately, everything is connected. So, if you ha- let's say I have inflammation as a rheumatoid arthritis, right? Okay? Mm-hmm. As an example. You have inflammation that's in the joint. Well, the products of inflammation spread all over. And because it spreads all over, it affects the brain, right? If you can't sleep well because you're hurting, well, that affects cognition. Uh, And if it affects cognition, right, that in itself can lead to mental decline, right? So you can see how you have that progression happening.
2: No, it's the fundamental interconnectedness of of our systems that, you know, it it makes it a challenge. It's both a blessing and a a curse, right? That's
0: correct. Right, and so you've got to take. You have to approach this from a more holistic point of view. So you have to take things that are uh, antioxidants to help with with the inflammation, right? Right. Mm -hmm. But then there are other things. There's quality to inflammation that you can help with it, right? So I do know there are certain herbs that people have taken that help with cognition, and it help. It may not be directly affecting the structures that are responsible for cognition, but it can. It helps because it is indirectly affecting the entire system. For example, things like ginseng. Ginseng has been known to help with cognition, especially with older people. Now, when I say help with cognition, the, the, the studies that they look at is probably a clinical-type study, not, not a mechanistic-type study. So, for example, they may things, do things like, does it help you sleep better? while well, indirectly helping you sleep better will help you find the words easier so your cognition scores will go up. Right. Right? So there are things like, um, there are other herbs that have help with that, things like bacopa, right, which is a herb that, that has some clinical evidence, again, to show cognition increases. There are... If you increase protein intake, has also shown to, to help with cognition. Actually, I just came across a paper not too long ago talking about seven amino acids that have been shown to improve cognition. Hmm. Right? Now, again, it is not a cause and effect type of thing. It's just an associative type study where they show that you know, if I increase taking these um, few amino acids, all right, we see an increase in our cognitive function. Right. And again, these cognitive function tests are basically a clinical type test. So it's not like a, I pull blood and I can show a marker or something like that, increase or decrease.
2: With the amino acids, are these typically amino acids that we would find in the food that we eat?
0: Yeah, well, amino acids all come from protein.
2: Right, okay. Okay,
0: and so if you increase your protein intake. But what they did that was special about this one was they were looking at a special amino acid combination. Okay. Right and so on. Again, in all fairness, if I was to take, let's say, easily digestible protein, like say, uh, milk protein, for right. example, yep, right, I would get all these amino acids in there. Okay, right, and sometimes it, it, people would have you believe that it is a special mix of amino acids that's going to do the job. I think the, the the thing is, as long as you're getting some of these amino acids into your system, it will help the cognitive function.
2: We've touched upon this before in earlier shows. Is it the issue as we age, we can't metabolize those amino acids and therefore we need to supplement with them?
0: No, I, I don't think it's because we can't digest. I, I think as, it is, as we get older, we eat less. The types of food that we eat decreases. The variety also decreases. And as we get older too, we need more of everything to help with the repair mechanisms. And our right. repair mechanisms are not as um, efficient as they used to be w- when we were younger, right? So basically, if you think of, if you're building a wall, right? Yep. I, I can give you all the bricks, etc. but if the guy who's putting the wall up is pushing 90, you know he's not going to be efficient building this wall, right? right? As yeah. opposed to getting a 20-year-old to build a wall right? So everything is being equal, meaning I give you all the equipment you want, everything else is there. The actual building itself is slowed down. And I think as we get older, our repair mechanisms are slowing down too. And, and in addition to a whole bunch of other things that's going on, right? But one of the things that we can do is to, to help stave it off and to help slow down that decline is to help, is by taking different supplements, things like fish oil, Mm -hmm. right, which is high in EPA and DHA. Now, one of the ways that, one of the things that you have to think about when you're doing fish oil, fish oil is a source of fat, right? Mm -hmm. And if you get regular fish oil, you have, it's roughly 18% um, EPA, 12% DHA, okay? Those are the two, essential um, fatty acids that you find in there, or omega-3 fatty acids that you find there. You can get fish oil these days, which have higher percentages of EPA and DHA. So basically what they've done, taken fish oil, and they concentrated up the EPA and DHA. Bang for the buck, that's the better one to, to take just because you have less fat, but you have higher amounts of EPA, DHA for the same amount of fat that you're consuming. You know, but in the light of time, maybe we should continue this another day.
2: Maybe in the new year. How about that?
0: Yeah, fair enough,
2: right? Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. That was Dr. Gordon Chang. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss what an iron deficiency looks like on The Tonic. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. The tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their liquid greens chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit free, and great tasting greens on the market. Liquid greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained, natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice, the mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy, enjoy the detox, enjoy the great taste. Purely natural, liquid greens. Is joint pain keeping you from enjoying your favorite activities? New Roots Herbal can help. Whether it's reducing acute pain and chronic inflammation or rebuilding worn down cartilage, discover Joint Pain Relief inflaheal plus and chondroitin glucosamine from new roots herbal only the highest quality natural ingredients tested for purity and potency in an iso accredited lab available exclusively at your local health food store to ensure these products are right for you always read and follow the label
3: this is the tonic on zoomer radio
2: Nadia Rizzo graduated from the University of Windsor in 2011, where she completed a thesis in psychology that revolved around the connections between lifestyle factors, stress and health. She then went on to attend the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine, where she completed her board certificate mid-pregnancy in 2016. In 2019, she published a book entitled Eat Your Way to Sexy. She's a thriving naturopathic doctor who focuses on understanding her clients as a whole being. It's been a while, but welcome back to the show, Nadia. How are you?
3: I'm fine. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here.
2: I'm excited, too, because we're talking about something that we actually have never addressed in all the time that we've been on the show. And that is iron deficiency. So let's start with what does an iron deficiency often get mistaken for?
3: Yeah. So an iron deficiency will often get mistaken for general fatigue, I find. It often gets chalked up as, you know, you're busy, you're tired of course you're going to feel lethargic. So I find that it often gets written off before an investigation is actually done.
2: Yeah. And I guess, you know, moreover, like during COVID, there's just so many people that are experiencing fatigue for whatever reason. I would imagine they're not even turning their minds to this, right? Like they probably just think, oh, you know, it's just this one-off situation and, you know, I'm just running myself ragged, right?
3: Exactly.
2: So how does one establish that they're iron deficient?
3: So the the best way to do this is to keep track of your lab work. It's a great objective measure to look at, because then you can actually track what your levels are doing over time. But clinical signs and symptoms can include dark areas under the eyelids. Fatigue is a very common one, which is why it often gets thrown under the rug. And even concentration and focus can be impacted by your iron.
2: Okay. Is this different? So, for example, somebody who's a millennial or somebody who's a boomer, will iron deficiency look the same and manifest the same way?
3: It can look different for different people, but when it comes to age... It often gets missed in children, I find. This happened with my son, personal experience here. So we had to do some digging there. And my son actually as a toddler was iron deficient and it took a lot of digging to get there. So sometimes, especially with kids, you might think they can't concentrate, they're tired. Until other signs and symptoms start coming up, you might not go there right away and think, oh, maybe my child has an iron deficiency. And especially with boys, When it comes to women, however, it can change, because especially when a female starts menstruating, we lose iron with our menses. So I find that this is when people tune in a little bit more around adolescence with females. And then as we age as females, and we get into the menopausal phase, we stop menstruating. So you might see levels change there because they're not losing the iron with their flow anymore. So that can definitely be impacted when it comes to iron and age.
2: So if you're of the view or if you think you might be iron deficient, I, I presume a simple blood test will determine whether or not you are or you aren't, right?
3: Exactly. Exactly.
2: And that could be administered not only by a doctor, but as a naturopath, you can ask for those blood tests, correct?
3: Exactly. And even your nurse practitioner. Yeah.
2: Okay. So what's the risk of having an iron deficiency? Like, How does that manifest in terms of other health issues?
3: Yeah, so an iron deficiency over time can impact so many things. So iron impacts our thyroid. We need iron to make thyroid hormone. And your thyroid is your master gland. So that impacts so many things. So if it doesn't have those building blocks to make thyroid hormones, that can be impacted over time. Iron impacts our hair. It impacts our energy levels, as we already touched on. But it also can impact, and this is suggested with animal research, our fertility or our conception rates. There has been a correlation with animal research and fertility when it comes to iron levels. And something else that we know, Jamie, is that a child's iron levels during their first year of life is impacted by mom's iron levels during pregnancy. So this continues even after baby is born, the impact of iron levels.
2: Hmm. So how does one's iron level change? Is it a question of diet? Is it a question of lifestyle? Or are there other factors that might impact
3: it? That's such a great question, Jamie. So when it comes to boosting our iron levels, you can do it with food, you can do it with supplementation. However, I wanna say that if the person has an absorbability issue, so they have poor gut health and they overall just have issues absorbing, Whether you're doing it with food or with supplementation, there's going to be a compromise there. So you want to make sure you're addressing your gut health and making sure that you actually can absorb what you're putting into your body. So that's laying the groundwork. And then when it comes to sources, you can incorporate other foods, iron sources from animals like heme sources, which are animal-based iron sources tend to be better absorbed by the human body than plant sources. However, it is possible in the diet to get iron from plant sources, from things like beets and pumpkin seeds even. But when you mix certain vegan sources of iron, there's a constituent in some foods called oxalates. And I talk about this in my book, Eat Your Way Sexy. There's a whole area on this. When you consume foods like barley, like spinach, that contain oxalates, and you're mixing that with your beets and your pumpkin seeds, thinking, wow, I'm getting a great high iron meal. The oxalates in the barley and the potato and the spinach and other foods actually act like a big red stop sign and stop the absorption of iron from other vegan foods. So when it comes to diet, if you're relying solely on vegan foods to boost your iron, it's very difficult to get those levels up because of these oxalates that are present in so many foods.
2: As a naturopath, would you recommend supplementation for vegans then if they have iron issues?
3: So I always say you have to get your case worked up by your practitioner because no one case is the same. However, if you are looking for supplementation, I tend to use animal-sourced supplementation because it's so common that people get side effects when it comes to their supplementation. And I tend to use animal-sourced supplementation. So it is better absorbed by the human body and we tend to see less side effects clinically, at least I've seen that with my own self and with my patients. When it comes to gastrointestinal upset, when it comes to absorbability, you really wanna make sure you're maximizing that. So I like using animal source products even if you're supplementing and not relying on diet.
2: That makes sense. So you were just mentioning that you sort of approach it on a case-by-case basis. Can you sort of give an example on how you you know, might have, obviously without names, diagnosed it in a patient?
3: Sure. So, and I can even use my own self as an example, but it's very common with females, so I'll use more of a female-based approach, but especially with menstruation, so again, a female starts menstruating, she's very tired, maybe this can, she has a very heavy flow, you know, the thing with females is they will rely on asking the other females in their family for their opinion and experiences, and if they don't know any different, they just think that's normal. So eventually, if I see you know, a female who's very tired or maybe their hair is spinning, I will always incorporate iron as part of the workup. If someone is presenting in front of a healthcare practitioner saying, I am tired, a simple blood test of running your iron is merited, right? And yeah. even if we're not doing it to say, well, I think it's probably your iron, and I think we absolutely need to run this to confirm, you're doing it also to know that it's it is or it isn't it goes both ways so it's a cheap test it's not expensive and it's merited whenever anyone is presenting with fatigue it's part of the workup it's not the only piece of the puzzle but it should be included as part of the puzzle
2: okay so we touched upon supplementation a few moments ago and perhaps you could explain you know the best way to supplement you know do you do it on an empty stomach do you do it at a particular time of day like what's best when it comes to iron
3: okay so When it comes to iron, things that can support the absorbability when you're supplementing include vitamin C. So taking an iron supplement with a vitamin C supplement can be very helpful. Some iron supplements are compounded where the vitamin C is already in the same pill. Sometimes it's not and you have to take the vitamin C with it. When it comes to inhibiting absorption, dairy can compromise the absorbability of the iron, so you wanna take it a few hours away from any dairy sources. So this presents A challenge for some people if dairy is included in their diet and at that point I kind of just say take it when you are most willing to take it when you are not going to forget to take it I don't like to put too many rules on someone because then it it makes it more difficult for them to stick to the plan so if we're only gonna stick to two main guidelines I would say vitamin C is very helpful for the absorption and taking it away from dairy other than that Take it when you are most willing to take it and when you won't forget to take it.
2: Does iron impact our overall weight?
3: So when it comes to iron and weight, there can be a little bit of an indirect relationship, Jamie. So we touched on the thyroid and we mentioned how iron is needed to make thyroid hormone. So imagine if you don't have these building blocks and you can't make a final product. You have no bricks, you can't build a house. You don't have these building blocks, how are you gonna make your thyroid hormone? It's part of the process. So then thyroid gets impacted, and thyroid impacts our metabolism. Thyroid impacts our fertility. Thyroid impacts it's this master gland. So there's a little bit of an indirect relationship there. It's not like, oh, I have low little iron, and now all of a sudden I'm going to put on 30 pounds. It's more you have low iron long enough, and then it can impact your thyroid, and then you can see changes in weight because now you have a compromise in your thyroid health, which controls your metabolism. <sighs>
2: Okay. So if we've engaged our listeners and they're concerned that they might want to test their iron levels, what are the steps they need to take?
3: Go talk to your doctor, your family doctor, or your naturopathic doctor even, and let them work up your case and then get your lab work done, get your blood test done. It's very simple.
2: Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: That was Dr. Nadia Rizzo, ND. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss emotional regulation on The Tonic. Hi, this is Jamie Busson of The Tonic. If you enjoy The Tonic talk show and podcast, you'll love The Tonic newsletter. With links to the podcast and articles from the magazine, the newsletter will also let you know about upcoming health and wellness events, curated articles from across the internet that expand on the health and wellness topics important to you. There's contests and prizes and so much more. Best of all, it comes directly to you. To subscribe, be sure to visit thetonic.ca. The Tonic newsletter, you know for what ails you. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com.
3: You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio.
2: Tracy Sagrati has an eclectic background in molecular biology, psychology, and nursing. She practices psychotherapy and yoga therapy and has over 20 years of experience in leading classes, workshops, and events. She believes that the tools of mindfulness pave the way for deeply meaningful life at any stage. You can find her at SogratiYoga.com and Yoga on Facebook or at Tracy Sograti on Instagram. Welcome back to the show, my friend. How are you doing?
1: Thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here.
2: So today we are going to talk about something that yet again uh, <laughs> pertains to my particular personality type.
0: And uh,
2: again, you know, everybody gets to witness my personal growth on the radio. So we're going to talk about emotional regulation, and perhaps we should start by explaining what that is.
1: Yeah. Well, just for your listeners as well, it's really helpful to have an example, and that's why I try to pick things that will be useful for you so that we can talk about you.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I am your example. Go ahead.
1: (laughs) Okay. So emotional regulation is, like, I guess the layperson term for it would be self-regulation. Yeah. It's really about, you know, having an awareness of your feelings. So knowing actually what they are, so you can name them, the ability to notice the sensations that happen in your body when you're having the feelings. So you can sort of feel it coming on, feel it in your body, and then to also have the ability, and this is the kicker right here, to actually choose what to do with the feelings when you're having them. And sometimes the choice is about doing nothing at all, mm-hmm. but it's just about having that space where there's a choice. And, you know, I'd, I'd say a second layer to this is really about understanding how things like stress, your mood when you wake up in the morning, or even the external environment, so what's happening around you, impacts your feelings. And then your body, because your feelings are felt through sensation. And then, of course, your behavior. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when, when you're able to emotionally regulate, what you're really able to do is manage. It's like mind management. You're able to manage your emotional state, and you do that by changing, say, um, how intense your feelings are, how long they last, and even the quality, so like the valence of them, whether they're sort of negative or positive.
2: I am perpetually stuck at step one, you know, like I was thinking like my life is a 12 step program and I'm always, so I have this awareness of when I'm out of like, you know, when I'm really feeling down, Naomi and I call it like, everything's bad. Nothing is good. And and, 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 like you have those days where like your perspective is just off, right? Like, and you know, you could say I'm in a bad mood or I woke up on the wrong side of bed or however you want to parse it. Yeah. But you know, I'm there. I, I understand when it's happening. But now let's talk about, you know, once you understand that it's happening, what do you do? So how do you know if you have to work on this skill of emotional regulation? Like, I've come to realize that, but it's taken me 55 years.
1: Yeah. So, well, can I just acknowledge first that, like, human beings are slow. You know, anybody who thinks that change happens quickly, like, I just want to kibosh that idea, like change happens very, very slowly, you know, and the fact that you're 55 and can see it is fantastic. Like, I would just celebrate that because some people get to the end of their lives and never realize it at all. So the short answer to your question is that everybody needs to build the skill. Mm -hmm. There really isn't a single person that doesn't need to build on it and expand it. And what we know from the research is actually that poor emotional regulation is related to psychological dysfunction. So anxiety, depression, you know, and more serious disorders as well.
2: You Um, mean it's a signifier or it's like a Venn diagram where if you have one, you'll likely have the other?
1: Yeah, more like a Venn diagram. Okay. So the thing I would suggest that people do is just to ask yourself, what emotions do I struggle with the most? And when you can pick out those key emotions for some people it's anger, rage, jealousy, you wanna then explore your emotional reactivity. And this is Jamie where we could use an example. And this really has to do with, okay, when you have the emotion that you struggle with, what is the intensity of it? So how strong is it? Like how fast does it come on? How short is your fuse? How long does it last? And then, you know, what happens to you in terms of your behavior when you're feeling highly emotionally reactive? Like, do you do things that you regret later? And you can think about emotional reactivity, especially if you're a parent. You can think about the difference in, you know, if you have more than one kid, the difference between your kid's temperaments, right? Mm -hmm. How reactive one is versus another. Does this make sense? Yeah. it, It
2: totally does. I have, you know, it's funny. It's like, Who's more like Naomi, who's calm, and who's more emotional? So I have two of the three are more like me, and one is very much like her. And the one that's like her, it takes a lot to get that one upset. But once yeah. they're upset, they're pretty upset. So yeah, yeah. totally see. Yeah.
1: yeah, and sometimes this is related to age you know, yeah. and the developmental stage that they're going through. But yeah, you're right. There's a genetic slash environmental piece that's happening. And the only way to kind of interact with that is through training.
2: Okay, so how will we improve our lives by digging into this and and trying to improve?
1: Yeah, this is the gold. So, you know, as you learn to self-regulate, right, you can start to make choices that are actually in alignment with your goals and values. Because when you're dysregulated, like when you're highly emotionally reactive, like what will happen is that... Your behavior, especially like if an emotion comes on strongly, the intensity is really strong and your reaction, like when the pressure builds up internally in your physical body, what will happen is if you can't regulate it, if you can't manage it, you'll, do, you'll execute a behavior to try and make the pressure go away. So let me give you an example. That might look like yelling and screaming. Mm-hmm. It might look like throwing something. Kind of like a child having a tantrum. It might look like consuming alcohol or drugs, doing something to actually regulate yourself. And in the long run, if those behaviors, and we can call them maladaptive coping techniques, if they aren't in alignment with your goals or what you really want in your life, then you're going to constantly sabotage yourself. hmm You know, and then the other thing is you can start to, as you become more skilled at this, you can start to learn how to upregulate your positive emotions. So that means if you want to feel a little bit better, like when you're talking about Jamie, where everything is doom and gloom, that sort of problem saturated narrative that you're going through you can start to notice how to actually improve your positive state and it's really simple strategies are through like savoring really beautiful things in your life or really practicing gratitude or staying anchored to the present moment instead of going into a story about the negativity of the present moment and then you could downregulate negative feelings right so that you avoid that downward spiral that you were talking about earlier And then the last piece is when you regulate your emotions, because emotions are expressed like we feel it in our physiology, in our body, you actually improve your physical health.
2: I think I'm selling it. It makes a lot of sense to me. And in fact, I see it being tied together because one of the things that gets me out of my bad mood is to actually exercise. I find I get a clarity after I do a particularly hard workout and my view of things invariably changes after a good workout.
1: Yeah, no, this is exactly what we're talking about. And, you know, we're, we're sort of jumping into something I want to touch on next time we talk. But that is what is known as an adaptive strategy, right? So exercise is going to flood your brain, first of all, with positive neurochemicals. Mm-hmm. But it's also going to allow you to process your stress and more than that, your distress rather than turning to something like food or alcohol or drugs.
2: Oh, trust me. I do all the latter too. But but
4: (laughs) it balances it. It balances it out.
2: It does. But, you know, exercise, if it's intense enough, brings me in the moment. Because, like, if I'm rowing and I'm trying to keep a certain pace, if I don't focus on that exact thing, the pace at which I'm rowing, I can't hit it, right? It it almost becomes like a mantra. Like, Do you know what I mean? Like, in a perverse way, trying to row, you know, 500 meters in under two minutes, if I let my mind wander, I wow. notice that I can't hit that mark. So yeah, absolutely, it brings me into the present, although I'm pretty sure that is a very personalized approach to it. It wouldn't work for everybody.
1: Well, I, I think something like hot yoga, like I think part of the pull of hot yoga is that the room is so hot that you actually can't think of anything else.
2: Yeah. No, that makes sense. Right? All right. So yeah. let's, let's talk about how the skill of emotional regulation manifests.
1: So the first thing is to practice identifying your emotions. And this means, you know, for the next year, you might just practice naming the feeling you're having, noticing what happens to your body, and then paying attention to the behavior urges, so like when you're feeling down you wake up on the wrong side of the bed, Mm -hmm. you know in quotations What are the behavior urges? What are you feeling in your body? So you're just paying attention and building your awareness. The second piece is selection So once you notice you want to start to select a skill to use to regulate And so for you, the skill might be, say, exercise first before you go to something like wine or, Mm -hmm. say, unhealthy foods. And then the third step is just implementation. So using the skill. So we can select all kinds of things, like the road is paved with good intentions, right? It doesn't mean anything unless you actually implement it. So you have to see the emotion, select a skill actually execute it, and then reflect back like, oh, how do I feel now? Was I able to manage my mind? And once you can see the positive spiral that happens from that, it just makes doing this, building this skill really easy and inspiring almost because you start to feel better and more in control of your life.
2: Well, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. My pleasure. What do you want to talk about next month?
1: I want to talk about
4: self-care.
2: Okay. That sounds great. That was Tracy Sogradi. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss the dilemma of delayed vaccinations on the tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their Liquid Greens Chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid Greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural liquid greens. Hi, I'm Jamie and I'm not only the host of the Tonic Talk Show and podcast, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic's a health and wellness publication distributed with the Globe and Mail to each and every home subscriber in Toronto west of Victoria Park. And it can be found free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA. You can learn more about Tonic Magazine at tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic talk show, check out the new look of Tonic Magazine.
3: This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio.
2: Dr. Christine Palmay is a family doctor and runs a busy practice in Midtown Toronto. She has a particular interest in public education and speaks and writes on a wide variety of topics with a specific passion for immunization and women's care. Welcome to the show, doctor. How are you doing?
4: I am great. And how are you today?
2: Good, sir. I'm doing great, except I have to make a confession. Can I make a confession today?
4: I am all about confessions. Absolutely.
2: Okay. So I'm terrible. I took one half of the Shingrix vaccine and I've been delaying getting the second one and I understand I'm not alone in that.
4: You are absolutely not alone. I, I don't want to say that there's comfort in numbers, <laughs> but this has been one of the victims of this past, you know, year and a half as we've dealt with COVID. So many adults and children, but we'll be focusing on adults, have really missed their vaccines, which you know, is a pillar of preventative health care. Thankfully, Jamie, we have a bit of leeway during COVID. So because uh, Nasi acknowledged that access to vaccines was probably limited, they extended the upper limit to getting your second shingle shot to a year. So you should you know, try to get it within six months, but we have a little bit of leeway. Point being, go in and get it as soon as you can. And make sure that when you make that visit at the doctor's, you do sort of an immunization checklist and see potentially what else you're due for.
2: Yeah, no, that makes good sense. You know, I was trying to be rational. I was trying to, like when I knew we were talking about this topic, I was trying to think, you know, why is it? Is it fatigue? Are we just fatigued with all the rules and regulations and things that we had to do with COVID? Is it sort of a spinoff effect where people are starting to question the efficacies of vaccines? Like, what do you think it is? Why are you seeing your patients or why are you reading about people not following through with their vaccines?
4: Yeah, I mean, I ruminate on this uh, on a daily basis. So, you know, a couple of things. There was actually a study that was just put forth. Uh, To backtrack, you know, when COVID was first, you became a real issue, lockdown started. Most major medical bodies, all the way from NASI to CDC to local bodies, you know, public health said, whoa, we don't know what the next few months, which has now turned into a few years, will bring. But, you know, routine immunizations cannot be delayed. So there was the trepidation initially. Fast forward, you know, we actually have data about delays. In a study that was done in Ontario, 1.8 million adults claimed that they likely missed an immunization. 10% weren't sure. I guarantee that's underreported because studies have been done showing that patients don't necessarily know, you know what uh, immunizations they're eligible for. Point being, there's a huge gap. The reasons that are cited, you know, practically access. My family doctor wasn't available. They were doing virtual calls. I didn't know where else to get immunization. I was told to stay home. And, you know, what was considered an essential medical service differed according to the patient. So, you know, I spend so much of my time, Jamie, when I'm talking to patients, seeing them in the office, regardless of the issue, you doing an, uh, a preventative care checklist which includes immunization. So when are you due for your tetanus? I cannot tell you the number of panicked calls during lockdowns when patients were, you know, in a great way, rediscovering their kitchen, doing renovations, and all of a sudden you get that classic, I stepped on a rusty nail. It's, you know, their tetanus wasn't uh, updated. In the throes of lockdown, that became, you know, a serious issue. So I think part of it is information from public health that they had to stay home and then the lack of awareness of prioritization of medical care. Definitely access, you know, this particular study, when they asked point blank, you know, what do you see as a key factor in encouraging you to get an immunization? And access was part of that. So the silver lining to this pandemic, I think, is understanding that medicine is a team sport, and perhaps the way we had these siloed medical doctor's offices that were only open from 9 to 5, are just not what the public needs right now. Pharmacies opened up last year. I champion and praise my pharmacist colleagues. We could not have gone into last year's influenza season and the COVID rollout without them. You know, people are now getting immunizations and convention centers uh, and school gyms. So I think that there's going to be more of a familiarity that you don't have to go to your family doctor's office to get that needle. Just get the needle. And I am a huge champion for encouraging patients to access these alternative locations. right? The important thing is that the needles go into the arm. And pharmacists, nurse practitioners, they're all trained to do so. The only thing we need to do is keep track. Canada is quite behind on the national registry, so I always encourage my patients. There's a wonderful app called Can Immunize. You can go online. It's free. And uh, I always say people forget their wallets. They certainly forget their health cards, but nobody forgets their phone. So it's a self-documentation app. That parents can document their shots, the kids' shots, and allows one to have um, more people
2: to keep track of the organization. Okay, so these are all amazing ideas, and I guess my question to you is: huh? Is this coming top down? Is the medical association sort of suggesting to you approaching your patients like this, or is this something that came from you? And do you see this level of organization that's necessary at our government level? To sort of get this done on a mass scale because it sounds like it's a mass problem not an individual yeah. problem
4: I wish we had an organized system that was one way top-down it's just not working like that so there are multiple public health units in Ontario you know each function differently different provinces function differently so you know from my perspective there's definitely guidance from you know nasty and from Public Health Ontario Local medical organizations, the OMA, all emphasize the importance of immunizations and access. Is there one document that does, you know says this is the you know these are the ten Commandments of immunization care? No, a lot of it too is grassroots. So people like myself that do a lot of public speaking work together with pharmacists to try to open up the discussion, you know increase public awareness, increase public confidence, but also you know train our colleagues. In understanding that, you know, the, I think the greatest tragedy of this pandemic would be if we continue to do things status quo. You know, there's learning opportunity, and if everything else is changing, I call it the grand sanitization. Why not look at inefficiencies in the medical system? And immunizations are a simple one to target, in a sense, because we've already opened up access, you know, via the COVID vaccine clinics. So there's a comfort level now with the public. And also, Jamie, an awareness of guidelines, you know, before the pandemic, which I now call the plague. But before the pandemic, I couldn't use terms with my patients on NAS, you know, such as NASI or CDC or things like relative risk. And now I can actually use those terms and have, you know, a science-based discussion about guidelines, about the actual evidence-based science and, you know, confidently counsel my patients about these
2: issues. Let's talk anecdotally, because you're on the front lines, right? Like you're actually seeing patients. Mm-hmm. Are you witnessing sort of reticence? Like, you know, we talk about the vaccine hesitancy vis-a-vis <clears throat> the COVID vaccine, but is that sort of spilling over to other vaccines? Or are you witnessing that?
4: You know, I'm known to speak about vaccines, so you kind of self-pick your patient population. I'm annoying to patients who are anti-vaxxers because I talk about it all the time you know, in a hopefully non-judgmental way, but I feel that this is, you know, an essential point and there needs to be consistent messages that are repeated. What I'm, you know, and gladly so, dealing with is that you have people that are willing to be immunized and you celebrate those people. You have people that are absolutely not and you talk to them as much as you can, be consistent, calm, evidence-based, but you may not be able to convert those people. What I spend most of my time doing in terms of vaccine counseling is people who have concerns whether they're science-based or not I'm pregnant you know or I had an allergic reaction to this can I talk to you about this Dr. Palme those are patients that even if they call you know 445 on a Friday I am obligated to take that call and talk them through it I think that you know having a discussion with a patient who's thought it through can articulate their concerns and you know being trained in medicine and providing evidence to counteract that and explain why that particular patient needs that vaccine you know that's what i'm seeing more so than anything which is work there's no doubt about it but you know there's no other time for a primary care perspective you know, to show up and actually have those discussions i'm not seeing it spill over to the other vaccines it's actually quite the opposite i feel that You know, part of the pandemic awareness of vaccines is this opportunity to harness that awareness and say, you know, unfortunately, COVID has caused us to be reactive as guidelines evolve. We can be proactive with other vaccines, the shingle shot, the pneumococcal shot, make sure your tightness is up to date. You know, we have evidence that these are disease-modifying measures that can be done in advance. You're not scrambling online to book a vaccine after the fact.
2: Okay, so I'm going to give you now that you've pleaded the case for educating people, I'm going to give you about a minute and a half to explain Mm -hmm. why it's so important not to delay these other vaccines. Ready? Go.
4: A minute and a half. You know, part of preventative health care is ensuring that your vaccine updates are in place. You know, now with the pandemic, we are forced to look at ourselves in the mirror and really see the ramifications of a virus Uh, for other vaccines and bacteria that can obliterate the health of the society and of the globe in general. You know, I think stepping back and remembering times when polio was a forefront concern, remembering measles, mumps, rubella outbreaks, those were real, as real as COVID is. And if we have the ability, you know, to prevent those, I always say that, you know, good medicine treats disease. Excellent medicine prevents it. And that ethos is really a building block for ensuring that our health, you know, personally and as a society is a priority.
2: Excellently put. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, doctor.
4: Thank you so much for having me. Stay positive, test negative, and go get immunized.
2: That was Dr. Christine Palmay. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Dr. Gordon Chang, Dr. Nadia Rizzo-ND, Tracy Sograti, and Dr. Christine Palmay. And thank you all for listening to this episode of The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles written by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. The November-December issue is available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our new website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. Next week on the show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are so important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson, wishing you a healthy and happy week.